think Hamilton was back. Well, though he's just kicked the ground in disgust because that would be a terribly unfortunate way to get out. Alec Davis with the straight drive. This event happened at the Grange in Edinburgh in the 1999 World Cup. 4,264 people were at this game that was billed as the Associate Cricket Cup Final. Chances are, if you're not a Bangladesh or Scottish fan, you know nothing about this game at all. But what happened here actually changed the future of cricket. Now, the question is, did Gavin Hamilton get back in time? He's backing up. Here's the hit. Did he get back? Beautifully struck and very, very well fielded by Islam. And Hamilton is gone by the looks of things. Just wait for that fraction of a second. He's one inch short. That is absolutely... You couldn't get closer than that. So Gavin Hamilton departs. That commentary would actually go on to be one of the biggest understatements, perhaps, in cricket. Because let me explain what happened here just a little bit better. Bangladesh batted first, and after 10 and a half overs, they were 26 for 5. Farouk Ahmed made 7 runs for 24 balls, and he was their best batter at that point. They should have lost another as well. Minhajul Abedin was dropped at slip, and instead of leaving the crease, he dug in, backed up by Nama Rahman. They put on 69 runs, and then Abedin had to keep scoring with the tail. He would end up with 68 not out from 116 balls. Bangladesh would limp to 185 for nine. Scotland would have favoured themselves. They were considered the better team at this point. More importantly, they were at home. Scottish cricket was incredibly small in its own country when it came to attention. Despite having so many active cricketers, they were seen as little more than a small county team or a feeder for the England side. Douglas Jardine and Ian Peebles were Scottish. The history was there, but no one seemed to care all that much about their cricket. The game against Australia in this World Cup was the first ever shown on terrestrial TV. And that game was very important as well. It meant that Scotland was the first associate cricket team to host a World Cup match. Plus, Scotland had beaten Bangladesh 2-0 in the previous summer. Chasing less than 200 at home should be easy. And this would prove to the ICC that Scotland were the next team who should play test cricket. Unfortunately, they then lost three wickets for eight runs. They were five down before passing 50. And it wasn't just that they were going to lose. It looked like they would be embarrassed. That is when Gavin Hamilton came in. If you know the name, it could be because he had one of the most embarrassing test debuts of all time for England. He made a pair and took no wickets and was never seen again. But part of the reason that Hamilton was picked was his form in this World Cup, where he outscored all the English batters. Naima Rahman to continue. And that is 50 for Gavin Hamilton. And it's a well-crafted innings. 50, 61 balls containing four fours, cementing this Scottish reply. Very good innings indeed. Naima Rahman. Gone for the sweep shot. It's gone high and handsome. It's gone all the way. It's the maximum for Hamilton. This innings, he was flying. His idea was to go down fighting. He cruised past 50 at near run of ball, despite only having keeper Alec Davies holding on at the other end. Hamilton took them from out of the game to arguably in front. With eight and a half overs to go, Hamilton was 63 from 71 balls, and Scotland needed 48 from 51 on the back of a long, unbroken partnership. This is when Davies muscles the ball from back of a length at the bowler, the left-arm seamer, Mandrol Islam. 
When he sees it coming in his direction, he throws himself at it. But instead of stopping it, he accidentally knocks it back onto the stump. Hamilton doesn't do much wrong. He sees the ball coming back towards the bowler. He turns, perhaps slightly too slow, and he tries to get back into his ground. He is an inch short. There is nothing in it at all. And from that small butterfly flap, everything happens. Scotland collapse. They lose by 22 runs. And they have never been as close to playing test cricket as they were right then. Arguably an inch away. And who was the next test nation? Bangladesh. Welcome to Double Century, the podcast on the history of cricket. This season we are celebrating the Cricket World Cup. And this is the final World Cup we will cover, the 1999 edition, and we'll do that over the next two episodes. The thing is that Bangladesh actually had one more win in that 1999 World Cup. If you look at the history of teams getting test status, like Sri Lanka and Zimbabwe, both were given status after big World Cup wins. But there is a difference between beating England and India, like those two teams did, and defeating Scotland, as Bangladesh had. They needed a bigger victory. Enter Pakistan. At this point, the Pakistanis had not lost a match in this tournament, meaning they had already qualified for the next round with a big win recently over New Zealand. They held off a plucky West Indies team in the first match, beat Scotland easily, and snuck by against the Australians by 10 runs. So that final game just didn't mean much. And to this day, there are plenty of rumours about this match and how seriously Pakistan took it, or even worse, that it was fixed. But it is worth noting that Bangladesh entered this game thinking it was their World Cup final. Not only was it their last game to make a statement, it was against Pakistan, the team that had looked down on their East Pakistan players back when the nations were won. All the top order got to start. Even Mera Hussain, who scored nine from 42 balls, but none of them made a 50. They would end up with a decent 223, which was the first time they had passed 200 all tournament. And the bowlers were Wakar, Wazim, Shoaib, Azar, Saklain, and Shahid. I probably don't even need their full names for you to know who we're talking about here. The point is, this is one of the greatest polling attacks of all time, and Bangladesh do score over 200 against them. Then when they take the ball, Bangladesh also take a couple of wickets. Which in this tournament was very normal. The white ball was swinging around like crazy, but then this happened. Shafuddin to Anwar. It's going to be a run up here. Yes, and he's out. Naimul Rama, good piece of field in there at mid-wicket. Said Amai hits the ball to the left of mid-wicket and takes off. Inzimam al doesn't move. The next over, Inzi plays a disdainful flick across the line. The sort you see from seniors in the nets when a junior bowler is on, and he misses it. And when Salim Malik is out a few overs later, Pakistan is 42 for 5. Rahman is the bowler from the football stand-in. Good-looking shot. Could be a chance of a run-out. There's going to be a little feel here, and he's always calling for the third umpire. There's absolute chaos here. There is absolute chaos People coming from everywhere, and the game is not over yet. Well, it could be over if uh, the third umpire says yes to this, but uh, as far as the crowd is concerned, they think it's all over. The crowd were right. Saklain Mushtaq was run out, and Bangladesh would win their World Cup. Afterwards, Wazim Akram said, I'm happy we lost to our brothers, which again kind of fueled the idea that they maybe won't take it as seriously as they should have. But Aminam Islam, Bangladesh captain, said, 
We have made history today. Beating Pakistan, one of the best teams in the world, will help us attain test status and assist us in the development of our younger players. And he was right. It was this win that pushed them ahead of Kenya, who had a poor 1999 World Cup, and Scotland to get that next test spot. Bangladesh are a major test-playing nation today because of that tournament. But they were not the only important small team in 1999. Zimbabwe were on the back of a great period in their cricket. They started their run against India, where they made 252 on the back of an Andy Flower 68 from 85 balls. Grant Flower also added a 31. But it was their bowling that was amazing. Not always in a good way. In fact, it's worth noting that in this game, there were 91 extras. In fact, I don't know if it's worth noting, but it is true. India gave Zimbabwe 51 extra runs, which in most games would probably be the difference. But Zimbabwe gave back 39. India scored at good speed, but kept losing wickets. And that's gone a long way. That's the maximum. Peter Willey puts his fingers in there. With that hit, Javagal Srinath reduced the chase to 13 runs needed from 18 balls with three wickets in hand. Then it was a straight shootout between Henry Olonga and the Indian tail. And Olonga was all over the shop. He bowled a beamer in heaps of wides. And Zimbabwe were not helping with fumbles and overthrows. Well, that's a catch. That's out. Alistair Campbell's taking a low diving catch forward. Bowled him. That's it. Henry Olonga's taking his second wicket in the over. Srinath, clean bowled. Angels still need four, and they're down to the last pair at the crease. He may rue the wisdom of his choice of shot, but here we are back live. He's bound to be, he's out. Peter Willis decided that that's LBW, and a remarkable win by Zimbabwe. Henry Alonga has cleaned up the tail, and Zimbabwe win by three runs. This was a huge win. Zimbabwe had obviously won games at previous tournaments but they were seen as flukes or against weaker teams. Things were different now. Coming into this tournament, Zimbabwe had won 18 of the 39 matches. They were pretty much a 50-50 team, and they had a similar record to the West Indies and better than England or New Zealand. Plus, they'd already beaten Kenya as well. That win over India was important, but for Zimbabwe, the most important cricket nation is always going to be South Africa. They were essentially part of South African domestic cricket as Rhodesia, and South Africa had never lost a game against them. And this wasn't just any match for Zimbabwe. They were 2-2, two and two, the same record as India, who were playing England with three wins and one loss. Without wanting to get into points, tables, mathematics, no matter what happened in that other match, Zimbabwe had to win if they wanted to make it to the Super 6 stage. For this game, there was one player that the South Africans knew very well. Neil Johnson was born in Zimbabwe, but had moved to South Africa when he was still young. Despite being good enough to make it to South Africa A, he was never close to playing for the main team, mostly because he was a seam bowling all-rounder and South Africa had Brian McMillan, Hansi Cronier, Lance Klusner, Jacques Callis and Sean Pollock. He was eventually convinced to come home and play for Zimbabwe. For South Africa, if Neil Johnson had fought his way into the side, he would have been a lower middle order batter and a fifth or even sixth bowler. For Zimbabwe, he opened the batting and the bowling. In the middle of a World Cup, Neil Johnson was playing it like it was an under-16 competition. In the win over Kenya, he took 4 for 42 and made 59. And against the team he could have played for, he opened the batting and made 76 from 117 balls to carry his team to a moderate total. Then he bowled the first over. 
and they finished with 233 for six. South African supporters, I think, will be reasonably comfortable with that. Nancy Cronier will be reasonably comfortable with that. He'll feel it's certainly achievable. And that's the first one. What a start for Zimbabwe. Harry Korsken gone from the very first delivery. Port at Gully. This ball just took off from a length. It was a brute. And it didn't stop there. South Africa fell apart in dramatic fashion. And it started with the run out of Herschel Gibbs. Of course, there is more about him in the second episode of this series. At 40 for six, this match was over. Lance Klusner scored a run of all 50 to ensure it wasn't a complete disaster. But in the end, his runs weren't enough. But we'll talk more about Lance Klusner again in the second episode. Fielded a bit of a mix up here. He's gone. Mid on, we think it was Adam Huckle. Bouch is hitting it to the right. Very good save, but a very good quick pickup by Adam Huckle. Confusion out in the middle, resulting in Herschel Gibbs run out by a mile. Problems for South Africa here. They now have lost uh, two quick wickets. That's out. Umpire Shepard agrees with me. Not a very good shot at all. And he's reached that. He could have let it go. He might have got a wide. It's gone off the toe end of the bat. And Callis is gone. Drama. It is worth noting, a little bit like it was with Pakistan, that South Africa did not need to win their game. But even so, it was a very professional performance from Zimbabwe. They were now in these Super Sixes, and all they had to do was sneak up to fourth place to get into the semifinals. New Zealand was their best chance, but they only made 175, and then the rain came. Against Pakistan, they let 271 runs go through, but despite Johnson's 54, the team only managed 123. But it's worth mentioning two more things about Neil Johnson. One is that in 2013, the ICC put up a news story saying that Johnson was going to be the yoga instructor for the Indian side despite the fact that he did not know yoga. And the other thing worth mentioning is his game against Australia. It was played 16 years to the day after Zimbabwe had beaten the Aussies in the 1983 World Cup. This time it was at Lords. Their place in cricket had been upgraded. This was a much better Zimbabwean team too, but so were Australia. Mark Wall would become the first player with four World Cup hundreds, despite this being only his second tournament. He was hitting the ball so hard, he almost knocked out his twin Steve with a drive at the non-striker's end. The two wars combined for more than half of Australia's 303 run total. But Johnson still took two wickets, Adam Gilchrist and Mark Wall. Unfortunately, the rest of Zimbabwe only took another two between them. Then Johnson went out to bat. That's four more. That's the answer from the batsman. Good batting from Neil Johnson, the 50 up for Zimbabwe as they move to 55 for one. Another four. So that's five fours for Neil Johnson off Shane Warne. Yeah, Ian Chappell said it. South Africa finally found someone who could destroy Shane Warne and they let him go to Zimbabwe. And despite all the talent that Neil Johnson had, because of where he played most of his cricket, he only ended up with 61 international games. Just judging by his performance in this World Cup, 
It would be hard to say that this wasn't a fantastic player that we all should have seen a lot more of. It's gone, that's six, that's a big one. That's up into the first tier. Oh, what a hit. What a chase by Zimbabwe after 22. It's 122 for one. It's got that square. I don't think Moody will get it. That's another four for Johnson. He moves into the 80s. There it is. That's a wonderful 100. This 100 completely set Zimbabwe up. After 28 overs with Johnson and Murray Goodwin at the crease, they had 153 runs and certainly had a shot at winning. Sadly, from there, they lost 5 for 47 and ended up playing more for net run rate. But Zimbabwe gave Australia a huge fright. So it was actually quite sad to see them pull up and just coast to a loss. That's not exactly what Johnson did, though. This time he's gone thump to backward point. That's four more. That was a foolish delivery. What an innings. He's been out there all day in warm conditions. Fielded well, bowled well, picked up two wickets. Now he's fighting to the end. Well, he can only be going on adrenaline now, I think. Perhaps he's, uh, he's got a surge thinking, well, you never know. I might just be able to pull off something miraculous here. Check that. There's a man down there. It's going over his head. That's six. That's a wonderful strike over Martin's head at long off. What an innings. What a timer of the ball. Well, I don't know where he's getting the strength from. Zimbabwe would end up 44 runs short, and that was their best chance of ever making it through to the semifinals. Goodwin and Johnson would leave the national team shortly after when they weren't paid. The next World Cup, Zimbabwe would be in the news again, but for all the wrong reasons. This was probably the greatest time in Zimbabwe cricket. And if you watch Zimbabwe in this tournament, they took a piece of your heart, which of course is what made everything that followed for them so much worse. Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version that you can get via Patreon, and there are many other extras involved with being a member over there. In fact, this show would not exist if Patreon members had not helped us at the beginning and continued to support us. Cricket history does not pay, so any help you can give will be massive, and you'll find a link in the show notes to subscribe. Remember to please review, follow, tell your friends and family, and just people that you meet in parties about our show. All of that helps us grow. Double Century episodes are written by either Abhishek Mukherjee or myself, sometimes both of us. And I am Jared Kimber, and this is part of my podcast network. The podcasts are overseen by Nick McCorriston, who also edits and produces Double Century. And C.S. Chawanza is our man for social media clips. If you like the Double Century podcast, on top of subscribing and supporting us, there's actually way more content like this on the Jared Kimber YouTube page. <laughs>